0: Trade talks and updates to NAFTA. President Donald Trump saying that there are signs of optimism. He said that we're really doing well. He talked to reporters at the White House talking about Canada. He says they want to be part of the deal. We've got until Friday. And he says, the president says, I think we're probably on track. Well, let's find out if we're really on track. We've got Michael Dean, our senior analyst, European Automotive. For Bloomberg Intelligence. Plus, we've got Josh Wingrove. He's our Canadian government reporter for Bloomberg, and he just happens to be in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Josh Wingrove, we got just a small comment from Krista Freeland, the foreign minister of Canada, talking about intense negotiations with Robert Lighthizer. Any update on what exactly is going on in those negotiations?
2: Yeah, you're getting a good window into the glamour of trade reporting here, and I'm just calling from the streets of Washington where we're loitering and hanging on every word that Chrystia Freeland has to throw our way on the way in and out of these meetings, She's sort of swinging in and out as they bring in the political figures and bring sort of the, the, the technical experts, uh, who you might lovingly call the the true nerds, the nerds with street cred, to come ask about these issues. Um, But you know, there, there isn't a sense of panic in the air. It's hard to put a finger on, but given that we're 24 hours or so from this sort of quasi self imposed political deadline, which is frankly all that not that real of a deadline uh you know there's there's not really a, a back against the wall feel to it also i think that's reflected in the the views you're hearing from trump and trudeau that maybe they're on track to get something
3: what's interesting
1: is that at a day where it does seem like there is progress being made towards some kind of north american free trade agreement albeit not by that name there does seem to be a softening between the european union and the us as well with the european union proposing uh, reportedly anyway uh that they are willing to strip away all tariffs if the US is willing to do the same. And uh, Michael, I'd love you to come on in here. How significant, how serious is this? How seriously should we take this and how significant would it be for the auto industry in particular?
4: Hi there, yes, so the German automakers sell about 1.2 million cars uh, per annum in the US. About half of these are imported from the EU. So this would remove a 2.5% tariff which isn't massive in the scheme of things. But what I think the bigger issue here is if it removes the threats that Donald Trump proposed in a 25% import tariff. I think that's the the bigger positive here for the European car makers.
1: Michael, who would benefit more if all tariffs were done away between the EU and the US? Would it be the US automakers or the European automakers?
4: Most certainly the EU, given um, the numbers I just talked about, over half a million vehicles being exported to the U.S. each year.
0: Michael, does the United States really have an export strategy when it comes to automobiles targeting the European Union?
4: Well, they have brands in Europe. Um, they have Ford, which which still does very well. Um, as you know, uh, GM sold Opel recently, um, which wasn't such a success. So there hasn't really been a, a major sort of export markets uh, for the U.S. manufacturers into the EU, EU, and I don't think that will change.
1: Alright, so we have that softening of the European Union and the U.S. Uh, it seems like there is a good rapport, or at least not a bad report, between Canada and the U.S. and Mexico. So, Josh, what are we looking for to determine whether or not this is going to be a done deal, they're going to meet the deadline, and whether or not this is just basically NAFTA 2.0 with a few tweaks?
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know, the, the the parallel here is that it's less about what can be achieved by the deal than the threat that comes off the table. It's the same thing with EU cars, less about two and a half percent and the threat of twenty five percent, and the same with NAFTA because whatever they deal get a deal on this Friday will be a deal in principle at best, subject to months of. Further talks, legal haggling, you know, in trade, like single words in a trade agreement can mean all the difference in the world. So, you know, it's just sort of looking for a political win to get Trump satisfied, I guess. And it's going to come down to dairy and dispute panels. U.S. wants to basically do away with Canadian dairy system and the panels. And I guess they're looking for a way to save a little bit of both.
0: Josh, is there any way to disentangle U.S. automobile production from what happens in Canada, specifically in Ontario? Uh,
2: Not painlessly. Um, You know, Canada is a huge exporter of autos to the U.S. The supply chains are deeply integrated. Some parts cross the border six times before they actually end up in a car. So if you started tariffing it, it would be U.S. automakers who would have, would be certainly among those feeling the pain, and U.S. consumers would be among those paying the price, because I feel like this gets lost. It's so yeah. simple, but it's like it gets lost in it. Tariffs are paid by the country that it applies, right? So a yeah. U.S. tariff is paid. By U.S. people buying the goods.
1: Josh Wingrove, we're going to let you go. A lot of trade reporting to be done. Josh Wingrove is Canada government reporter for Bloomberg News. Michael, stick with us. I want to talk about the auto industry, and I want to talk about the news that we got out earlier today with the European Union. How credible is what we learned today that the European Union would be European Union would be willing to drop all tariffs if the U.S. were to do the same? Is that likely? Is that realistic?
4: I think it's possible given the magnitude of the exports from the EU and how important uh, the German auto industry is to the EU. I think uh, this definitely is credible.
1: How big is the auto industry for the German economy? Can you give us some perspective?
4: Well, German automakers have about $100 billion of revenues um, from the US. Um, about 20% of that is directly for exports to the US. So yes, it's, it's very significant. And what, about
0: 120,000 Americans actually work for European Union car companies in the United States, in states such as South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee, right?
4: That's correct. So both BMW and Mercedes have made the U.S. their SUV hub production base um, globally, and therefore they produce... Over 600,000 vehicles um, annually in the U.S., plus Volkswagen produces about 200,000 units, so it's very significant.
1: Thank you so much. Michael Dean, Senior Analyst uh, covering the European automotive uh, automotive sector for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us uh, from London. Michael, thank you.
0: He's an investor who follows Warren Buffett. David Dietz is the founder and the chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management, helping to manage more than $300 million of customer assets based in Summit, New Jersey. David Dietz, always a pleasure. When did you first invest alongside Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway?
5: Well, I've been a long-term Berkshire Hathaway holder. Uh, that goes back into the 90s uh, part of it is just so that I could get tickets to go out to Omaha um, and see him in person and I was lucky enough to be in Omaha just this past May and uh, he's still as witty and instructive and insightful as he's ever been and of course his sidekick there uh, uh, Charles Munger is, is is doing the same thing and uh, over the years I'd have to credit him as being so informative to our investing strategy here at point view
1: all right so let's talk about how he has informed your strategy in particular uh recently he was on earlier a couple of competing networks talking about how he likes airlines he prefers stocks over bonds what's been your biggest takeaway so far today
5: Well, you know, I think the number one question in everyone's mind, here we are in the longest bull market uh, ever by some metrics, is does he still like stocks today? And, you know, I felt he answered the question with yes for the long term. Um, You know, he always wishes to buy things cheaper, but he offered one comparison. He said, look, if you had a chance to buy a 30-year treasury bond or invest in a well-diversified basket of stocks, the stock choice is a no-brainer. So, over the long haul, he like stocks, particularly relative to where interest rates are today. Interestingly enough, he also opined on real estate and he thought stocks are cheaper than real estate. I know we have lots of clients, a lot of people out there are looking as an alternative to the stock market in real estate. He would inject a note of caution into that.
0: What about acquisitions? Do you believe that uh, Warren Buffett is searching for large acquisitions, or is he going to be spending time looking on bolt-on acquisitions, smaller? Th-
5: well, he. He's looking at everything. You know, his problem is he's just got this huge, massive cash hoard to, as he put it, would put it, move the needle. He needs to make a big acquisition, $50 billion or more, almost an S&P 100 company. Having said that, of course, they're still opportunistic in areas where they see a lot of growth. So, for example, we just learned that he, along with other tech giants, have invested in an Indian company, which focuses on mobile payments. So I think he's, he's open. Open to everything, but he really needs the big one.
0: Okay, but David Dietz, in his annual letter to investors, he talked about paying a sensible purchase price for an acquisition. And he said that this has been a barrier to virtually all the deals that they reviewed in 2017. He said prices for decent companies, far from spectacular, have hit an all time high. You think that still exists?
5: Well, yeah, I do. I mean, we haven't heard of any big acquisitions from him, and and that's why, um, you know, I think he made the easy uh, comparison in terms of where the stock market is today by just comparing it against, you know, these super low interest rate bonds. Um, What has been his biggest acquisition this year and recently is buying shares of Apple. But with Apple now the largest company on the planet, a well over a trillion dollar market cap and hitting all time highs as we speak, it's hard to argue that that is a great value today. And even he has said that when he first started buying very heavily in Q1, the stock price got away from him. He did admit to buying a few shares this quarter. But certainly, although he loves the business, I don't think that you'd, uh, you know, you'd walk away and say he loves the stock price right now.
1: So over the years that you've been following Warren Buffett, what's been the most valuable advice that you've taken from him?
5: I think it's it's two things really. One is to think long term. So, you know, so many people on Wall Street they're they're looking at a chart and looking at it. You know, what can the stock market do for me in the next day, the next week, the next month? He argues. You know, think about holding if think about holding companies for a lifetime, and I think. That gives him a staying power, um, which really works to his benefit when the rest of us are so short-term oriented. I think the second thing, of course, is don't look at stocks as pieces of paper. He says, look underneath them. Look under the hood. They are operating businesses. You know, if you wouldn't buy the stock, if the stock market was closed for the next six months, don't even consider uh, your purchase. These are operating businesses. Understand what makes them tick, how the cash flows work. Only then can you make an intelligent acquisition.
0: David Dietz, one of the quotes from his annual letter is that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, he says they both sleep well And they believe it is insane to risk what you have and need in order to obtain what you don't need. Do you believe that those words describe many of the acquisitions that have been reported so far this year?
5: Well you know that that's uh, there's been a lot of acquisitions out there, but certainly uh, just in his comments this morning, you know he talked about uh, debt and so forth and and uh, certainly the idea that you should leverage yourself deeply in order to make an acquisition um I think he's very negative on if the company won't stand on its own merits and uh, only makes sense if you leverage it to the hilt, he'd be very leery about. Um, And so I think that that's one great takeaway for for Wall Street investors. Don't operate on margin. Don't use next month's rent money. Only use money that you can afford to ride with for a long period of time.
1: David Dietz, stick with us. David Dietz is founder and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management based in Summit, New Jersey. Uh, We are about to head over and hear from the Oracle of Omaha himself. I personally am very interested to hear what he might be saying about his more than $100 billion cash pile, where he is going to put it. Also, he has made news this year talking about starting his own healthcare initiative uh, with a number of other companies. Perhaps he will give some insight into that. He is sitting down... With Bloomberg Television anchor David Weston at his annual charity lunch at Smith and Walensky in New York City, Berkshire Hathaway chief executive Warren Buffett uh, to be speaking about everything from stocks to bonds to uh, what he will do with this massive cash pile. Right,
0: and just to put it into context, the shares of uh, Berkshire Hathaway they are higher by about six percent so far this year, and uh, Warren Buffett holds a thirty-six and a half percent stake. Uh, in the company.
1: Yeah, so definitely uh, really uh, an interesting time. Also interesting will be whether or not the good times are over whether the opportunities that Warren Buffett uh, has experienced over his decades uh, of a track record, whether those have passed, whether this is a different time, and that just cannot happen given where valuations are.
0: Yeah, and and to wonder whether the valuations are better here in the United States or whether they're better overseas.
1: Mm, Yeah, I thought that it was really interesting with that Indian acquisition Uh, I thought that that was compelling, especially at a time when there's a lot of money going to startups in India. But this sort of growing recognition that that is a huge market that will surpass China in population uh, in the upcoming decade, not to mention its sort of technological developments and and the other advances in its economy. So it's sort of interesting to see whether there is value to be found there. Yes, um, and if so, where and how, as a foreign investor, it it, it is to get into that.
0: Yes, and uh, also uh, we'll be interested to hear if he has anything to say about tariffs and how mm. tariffs applied by the United States will affect the prices that consumers have to pay based on those pass-along costs.
1: David uh, David Dietz, uh, come on back on in here. David Dietz, founder and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Do you expect, to Pim's point, do you expect Warren Buffett to be political in any way?
5: Um, Well, uh, already in some comments earlier today, quite frankly, he was asked a question about the economy and uh, the issue of tariffs did come up. And of course, he's a long-term holder of Sherwin-Williams, the famous paint company. And he did allude to tariffs by talking about, hey, they're having to pay a lot more for their pails. And so, um, uh, you know, having been at the uh, annual meeting in in May and and knowing how he feels about tariffs, he is very much a free trader. And uh, So that was kind of a a veiled backhand negative comment on the whole concept of tariffs. Um, The the other thing that I thought was most interesting, the, the issue of Jerome Powell came up. Of course, he's the chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, we're in a period of slightly rising interest rates. But what I really liked, and I think bodes well for the markets, is he expressed the utmost confidence in Mr. Powell. He said he's not perfect, but he's going to focus on the job, and he's well-equipped to do the job. And I thought that was a real plus for investors going forward here.
0: David Deeds, quick question to you. When you are in Omaha attending the annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway, are you a aficionado of Dairy Queen?
5: Well, you know, I do smile. I do like Dairy Queen, to be honest with you, and I do smile every time I go there, knowing that in a very, very small way, I'm kind of benefiting from my purchase as a very indirectly as a holder of Berkshire Hathaway stock. All
1: right, David Deeds of Point View Wealth Management, stick with us. Also, not only Dairy Queen, but also Diet Coke, right? Because he's a big aficionado, uh, the Oracle of Omaha of Diet Coke. We seem to be having some technical difficulties uh, with respect to the interview, but a lot of really interesting things, Pim, uh that uh, Warren Buffett said there. And to sort of digest some of these things, let's bring in David Dietz, President and Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management. Um, he sounded really bullish. What was your takeaway?
5: Yeah, I thought there was a couple great things for investors that uh, we just heard. One is don't time that market. Is this a perfect time to invest? No, he said, you know, it's not 2008, it's 1970, it's not 1974 when it was the cheapest period in his lifetime, but still, stocks look better than bonds. And if you, you know, invest in a diverse array of stocks, you're going to do well over the long haul. I thought that was a great message. The second one is always buy quality. He talked about return on equities being 15 to 20 percent. Look for companies which are making. Making good money on the uh, capital they are deploying, they have a sensible business plan, some tremendous, some um, uh, defensible brands, and buy them and hold them. I thought that was just a great message.
0: But David, hang on just a second. I mean, it's hardly likely that he would say anything that would be contrary to that, right? I mean, that would be the news. If Warren Buffett came out and said, I want to spend money on companies that deploy capital needlessly and heedlessly and spend it on ridiculous things, I mean, that would be the headline. I mean, it's not exactly Warren Buffett's forte to be sort of tossing money around. I mean, he's a kind of parsimonious when it comes to his investment philosophy.
5: I think you're exactly right. And if you read his annual reports over the years and look at his latest activity, obviously, as he says, he's not out there with a shovel putting money into the market. You know, having said that, of course, when you look at all the great investors around the world and look at their track records, you're hard pressed to identify someone who has done better. So even though he, you could say he's talking his book a little bit, nevertheless, I, I think you have to give him the benefit of the doubt because of how well he has done.
1: Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting was when uh, David West of Bloomberg Television asked him about Atul Gawande, the New Yorker writer and, and physician who uh, Warren Buffett has tapped to head his healthcare initiative. And uh, David West asked, What's he doing? And Warren Buffett responded, He's thinking. What did you make of that?
5: Well, I mean, you know, the, the health care issues are so far proved almost to be intractable. Um, you know, the share of GDP in America keeps going up, just allocating that direction, and no one seems to have the silver bullet as to how to rein in costs yet still provide Americans with the best health care possible. That's why Warren and Jamie Dimon uh, and a couple others have teamed together to try and come up with a solution. But from everything I heard this morning here, no magic solution has been developed. Help, but at least they're working on it. And and, and that's where we are now with uh, Warren's project there.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. David Dietz is the founder and the chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management, helping to manage more than $300 million of customer assets based in Summit, New Jersey.
1: This was the year that oil was going to climb possibly back to its prior highs and yet that was not to be uh, joining us now to find out what to expect in the months ahead For The Price of Crude is Rob Hayworth, Senior Investment Strategist at U.S. Bank Wealth Management, helping to oversee more than $150 billion of assets. Rob, thank you so much for being with us. I'm looking right now at crude uh, just under $70 a barrel, and I'm wondering from your perspective, are we going to break out significantly to the upside or the downside? Because frankly, it's been split among the people we've spoken to, uh, with people making arguments on either side.
6: Yeah, our point of view is for the rest of this year, you're probably actually range bound on on oil at this point in time. There is a tremendous amount of bullish sentiment in the in the futures market, uh, but you're starting to turn the calendar from from peak demand summer season in, into the softer demand fall season. So that's going to limit the upside. But there is a bit of a floor in here when you think about the Iran sanctions, the the cuts in production that are going on in Iran. So. We think right now this market is kind of caught between these two factors, uh, and, and we're probably going to stay in this, in this price range for, uh, for through the rest of the year.
0: Rob, is it worth investing in domestic oil production, either in the midstream or upstream?
6: Yeah, a couple of months ago we actually uh, published a quick paper on uh, an opportunity in midstream uh, energy infrastructure companies, and we think that opportunity still exists. Uh, you've got oil prices hovering at this reasonable price range. Uh, as we can you know, see even in the Permian, uh, infrastructure is fairly tight, uh, meaning there's not enough storage, there's not enough transportation, um, and, and so demand for these, uh, for these services is fairly high. And you're coming off a fairly rough patch for these uh, midstream energy companies. So uh, valuations are fairly cheap. Yields are attractive relative to other things like high-yield bonds. Uh, and and now with some of this recapitalization in the in the industry and the change in structure from master limited partnerships to more C corporations, we think that catalyst is there to start to unlock that value.
1: You know, one thing that I'm curious about: if you think that oil prices are going to remain range bound, what's the biggest risk to your thesis?
6: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, there would probably be two. One is uh, U.S. production deteriorates a little faster than, than we expect. Um, that would be a, a, a key problem, uh, I think, for, uh, for oil prices. And then, and then the second is uh, really to the extent that this global trade war starts to impair global economic activity. Um, right now, expectations in the market are for demand to continue to grow and absorb this supply coming online, particularly as as OPEC, especially Saudi Arabia and and their non OPEC partner Russia, ramp up their production. Um, you need that demand to continue to expand. And I think if if we get a, a surprise softening from some you know unforeseen escalation in in uh, the trade tiff, um, that would be that would be kind of uh, problematic for the for the global oil markets.
0: Rob, I just want you to look ahead a little bit, maybe. You know, two years, three years or so, because of new rules that are going into effect in terms of shipping oil. Uh, you know, on the nation, on the world's oceans. Do you believe that it's going to get more expensive to actually transport oil, and as a result, that's going to filter into the price?
6: Yeah. Uh, yeah. In general, we think uh, we 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 would. See that that is true, right? I mean, that that's one of the bottlenecks we still really have in in this industry is uh, is this infrastructure. So ultimately, prices could tick higher over time, but it's but we've still you know that that's uh, it's tough to price at this point in time because oil is always priced on what's going on right now, what is going on with supply and demand right now. But there's certainly that opportunity in the future.
1: Are there any places uh, within the energy complex where you think that there are securities that are overvalued right now?
6: Um, we're generally, you know, we we have a pretty selective process uh, around around security selection. We're not uh, heavy into the integrated space. We're not heavy um, into uh, into. A broad swath of, of exploration and production. We're probably more interested in domestic at this point than we are everything else. So, so we've been pretty selective in terms of this midstream opportunity. Some uh, exploration and production, uh, but but avoiding many of the other segments for now.
0: Rob, has investment in gold changed?
6: Yes, uh, I think sentiment has finally rolled over. It's been such a rough road for gold since it, it you know, touched it touched its peak a few years ago, and, and as you've been breaking down, we've finally seen futures market sentiment move from net long to net short. Uh, and I, well, I think you've seen a bounce in the last uh, uh, last couple of weeks. Um, the struggle is the fundamental headwinds for gold are now against you, and I think the sentiment in the market has rolled over, and it's going to be tough for it to regain that bullish fur until until you you, you know until prices are finally washed out. So uh, a uh, higher interest rates from the Fed, a stronger U.S. dollar due to you know, somewhat better U.S. economic growth than rest of world. Um, it is going to keep providing that headwind. And I and I think uh, sentiment probably remains negative for some, some time and keeps pressure on gold prices.
0: Many thanks. Rob Hayworth, Senior Investment Strategist, U.S. Bank Wealth Management, based in Seattle, helping to manage more than $150 billion of customer assets. Well, we mark 10 years since the financial crisis of 2008. Many people remember it as the time when Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, disappeared. But there were some winners in that 2008 crisis. Annie Massa is here now. She's our investing reporter for Bloomberg News to tell us all about how one company managed to transform itself, taking advantage of some problems in well, other companies, and this has to do with BlackRock and Barclays. Start off, and it's great to have you here. Maybe just talk a little bit about what happened at Barclays that ended up benefiting BlackRock.
3: Sure, well, so Barclays did not accept UK government bailout money, and they were looking to shore up their capital reserves. So they ended up putting up for sale their iShares business, and that was their ETF business. And what ended up happening is that was a unit of a bigger business called BGI, and BlackRock swept in with this $13.5 billion deal to buy all of BGI. And in that acquisition, it got into the ETF space. And now we think of it as such a huge player, in fact, the world's largest player in ETFs. And this was the transformative moment and, you know, when they did this deal back in the throes of the crisis when that happened.
1: It's so interesting, Annie, because this clearly was a huge boom for BlackRock when it comes to how many assets they have with more than $6 trillion under
3: management. What about profitability, though? Sure. So um, obviously they're a highly profitable business and they have basically paved the way in a, in a couple of different ways for that um, through ETFs and, and various other products. ETFs are about a third of their business now, but it's pretty stark if you consider that they they weren't in that space at all. In fact, they had determined that they wouldn't be able to build it from scratch uh, in their own internal Uh, you know, review. And then once this came up for sale, they said, hey, we we have a chance to get into this business that that we want to be in. And that's how that acquisition happened. And that piece of their business uh, grew and grew over the past decade.
0: Financial risk software. What is it? And what did BlackRock do in order to capitalize on everybody's fear. It's like, you know, after a a hurricane, everyone says, I gotta go out and buy hurricane insurance. After 2008, people were worried about risk to their financial
3: assets. Exactly, so another way that this, the, the past 10 years have been tied to their growth is, after the crisis and the crash, firms were looking for ways to better assess their financial risk and and better evaluate uh, th- those types of risks. So BlackRock already had this Aladdin product that they sell, which does just that, helps, helps you analyze all the risks in your portfolio. And that business has uh, really shown some growth over the past decade and they were able in a changing regulatory environment too, to Uh, I think, find some new customers for that software. You know, just sort of taking a step back,
1: BlackRock certainly did benefit a lot uh, in the wake of the crisis from these specific businesses. But uh, in general, uh, asset managers were big winners. I mean, yes, there's certainly consolidation now, but if you think about it, in general, because of some of the stimulus packages, people flooded into asset managers and there was more uh, business that kind of went to the buy side from the sell side, as a result of this, right? I mean, is BlackRock kind of a a, a sort of um, a lens to view this shift through?
3: That's exactly right. And... One other way that you, you might look at it is these asset managers have not been given the too big to fail stamp that the big banks have. So, I mean, that includes BlackRock, but it also includes peers like Fidelity. Um, you know, the asset management community has been able to avoid being labeled too big to fail, even though they did for a while. It, it They were a little bit in limbo over whether that would happen. And ultimately, the you know, it, it seems like that scrutiny has tapered.
0: Fifteen seconds on Larry Fink and how important he has been to this success.
3: Sure. Well, he's obviously the face of the company, and he's only become more, I think, powerful and visible uh, in in these in the past decade.
0: Thanks very much for being with us, Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg. We encourage you to read her story about BlackRock's decade, how the crash helped forge a $6.3 trillion giant. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.